As you continue to serve the Lord in students at your school and in your neighborhoods, your jobs, eventually you're going to run into an objection. Somebody is going to criticize you for walking and following Jesus and serving Jesus and worshiping the Lord Jesus. They're going to criticize you in this way. They're going to say to you, that nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever claim to be God. And then they're going to provoke you. They're going to challenge you. Go read the Gospels and find a place in the Gospels where Jesus says in a public fashion, I am God. They're going to challenge you in that way. That's a conversation that we've been having for years and years and years. Is there any place in the Bible that Jesus explicitly claims to be God? There may not be a place in the Bible where Jesus says to the followers or to those who are watching his public ministry, I am God. They may be right about that, but they are so wrong that Jesus doesn't communicate to people that he is God. Now you may be thinking, why is this important? Why does it matter? Does it matter at all if Jesus is God or Jesus is not God? Well, for you and I it does. One reason is if Jesus is not God, then you and I, for the past 30 minutes, have been committing idolatry. The Word of God says that we are to worship God and God alone. We are to pray to God. We are to serve God. We're to worship God. There are to be no other gods besides the one true living God. And here we are, singing our praises to the Lord Jesus Christ. Praying in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not God, you and I are guilty of idolatry. Another reason that it's important for us to think through this is so that when we are serving, when we are ministering, when we are talking to people in the public square, as it were, and, and people challenge us, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus is God? I'm going to answer that question for you today. But another reason that it's important to understand what does the Bible say about Jesus is because we go to the Bible to inform our understanding, our perspective, our belief, our thinking about everything. What do evangelicals think about finances? Go to the Word of God and discover it. What do evangelicals think about sexuality? Go to the Bible and discover it. What do evangelicals think about relationships? Go to the Bible and discover it. What do evangelicals think about Jesus? Go to the Bible and discover it. So this morning, I want for us, if this is the first time that we've ever thought about, is Jesus God and does it matter after all? I want to expand our view of Jesus. You see that if you have your notes in front of you. Uh, and we're going to let Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, do that. So this is an important discussion this morning. And if you're new to the Christian faith, if, if you're just checking out uh, church stuff and you're here today for the first time, maybe you don't have a church background and you're thinking, what do Christians do and what do they believe? You have come at the right time because we are specifically 
going to be looking at who it is that we believe Jesus to be and why we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Mark chapter 2 is going to teach us that this morning. And you see in your notes that we're going to do several things. We're going to expand our view of Jesus. We're going to apply what we look at this morning and ask ourselves some really important questions. But before we start to dissect the Word of God, I just want for us to enjoy it. This is an incredible text of scripture. It tells an incredible story about a group of friends who are faithful, who are compassionate, who are creative, who are cooperative. It tells a story of this guy who is a paralytic and he can't walk and, and, and Jesus heals him in a miraculous way. It just tells this story of this great moment in time where people who loved people really made a difference in the world. And I want for us to see that and appreciate it and then we'll understand what it says about Jesus. Let's look at the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. It says, Now when he, he being Jesus, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So we've made this point before. Everywhere that Jesus went, he drew a crowd. Some people went to hear him teach. Some people went to get healed. Some people went to get demons cast out. Some people just went for the free meal, the free fish and some loaves. But no matter what the motive was, everybody wanted to be around Jesus. And the scripture says that Jesus was in this house. And and when people heard that Jesus was there, people flooded that place. People went and there was, it was so full that there was no room and you couldn't even get in the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Jesus was preaching the word to them. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when he had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. If you're trying to process that, if you're new to the faith and you're going, wait, what? They literally just tore a hole in the ceiling and they're letting him down. So this is a group of friends who said, by no means will we stop. We're going to get this guy to Jesus no matter what it takes. And when they're like, man, this place is full. We're late. Like you can't even get in the door. This place is so packed. One of them evidently said, well, we're not stopping now. We're going to get this guy to Jesus. And so they literally created an opening in the roof and they let him down. And so we pick back up. In verse 5, it says, Now, when Jesus saw their faith, the the faith of the paralytic man, the, the, the faith of the four who brought him, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Evidently, Jesus believed in sin. He believed that sin existed. He believed that sin was serious and that people needed to be saved and forgiven from it. And he says to this guy, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And so this morning, the title of this message is Proof. Proof that the Bible demonstrates that Jesus is God himself. Proof. Proof that Jesus believed that he was God himself. And and it's important for us to understand that is the claim of the Christian faith. The Bible clearly positions Jesus as God. Clearly Jesus thought he was God. And, And this text, and you may not be seeing it yet, and that's okay. But this text demonstrates that. It gives us proof that Jesus positioned himself to the world as God. We're going to see that in three ways this morning. We're going to expand our view of Jesus in three ways. The first way is this. If you're making notes, write down, Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts. The scripture says, the scripture says, if you'll go back and look with me, that that when Jesus said to this this paralytic man, son, your sins are forgiven, in verse 5, In verse 6 it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So understand the picture. These scribes who are watching this transpire, who are there listening to Jesus preach the word, who see these four men literally tear a hole in the ceiling above them and let this guy down. And and Jesus sees their faith and he's moved by their faith. And he says to the paralytic man, son, your sins are forgiven. These scribes who are watching all of this happen, they begin grumbling in their hearts. What does that mean? It means they never said it out loud. It was in their hearts, and Jesus perceived it. He could see through to their hearts. It wasn't like, you know how sometimes in church, somebody thinks they're whispering, and they're really not. Has that ever happened to you? Like, have you ever been listening to me or one of the other elders teaching and preaching, and like three rows behind you, somebody thinks that they're whispering, and they're not? And they're like, where are we going to go for lunch? And they're whispering back and forth and it gets awkward because it's like, do you not understand? Everybody in this section can hear you. And you need to understand, I see this happening. I see it a mile away. And it's funny, I have to tell you. I see all kinds of things. I see people falling asleep. I see it all. I'm just kidding. I'm not God. I don't see it all. I don't see it all at all. But this guy, these scribes, in their hearts, they're grumbling. And they're saying, who is this guy? He's blaspheming. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And they never say this out loud. They're not texting each other. They're like, who is this guy preaching right now? He's not God. He can't forgive. Like, they're not doing any of that. It's all happening in their heart. And the scripture says, Jesus saw it happen. Now, I want to share with you from the Old Testament what the Bible says about seeing the heart and who can see the heart. I'm going to give you three scriptures if you're making notes this morning. You can write these down. You can go back and look at them later on. Uh, if you're not making notes, just understand these are all from the Old Testament, all from the Bible, talking about who sees the heart of man. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 10. 
And God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah that it is I that search the heart. Okay, it's not I and other people. It's not I and the angels. It's not I and prophets. I, says the Lord of hosts, it is I who search the hearts of man. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 2 says that it is the Lord God who weighs the heart. It is the Lord who sees and weighs the heart. It is God who searches the heart. It is God who weighs the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord is speaking to a group of people through the prophet Samuel. And God says through the prophet Samuel, you have to understand something, that people make judgments based on what they see on the external. But I see people's hearts and make judgments based on what I see in a person's heart. Again, God is saying it is I, God, who sees the heart. And here we see in the scripture that Jesus has the ability to look and perceive what is going on in their hearts. He can see that they are grumbling. He can see that they are frustrated with what he's doing. He can see that they're upset with what's happening. Now I want to pause just for a second and step out of the scriptural story and just speak a word to you. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that means for us today is that you don't have to exhaust yourself and spend a lot of energy trying to hide what's going on in your life from God because it is God who sees the heart And so this morning as you're sitting here listening to me and maybe you're going through hard times or maybe you're going through good times or maybe you feel confused about life or maybe you're struggling with a decision that's coming up and you've got this huge storm raging in your heart. I just want you to understand today that it is okay that the Lord sees through to our heart. In fact, it's more than okay. It's good. It's awesome. It's a reason for us to celebrate. And the scripture says that Jesus perceives the heart. And that is good news. That is good news this morning. Now for the scribes, it put them in a little predicament. Because they're grumbling in their hearts. But Jesus sees the heart. So as we're looking this morning to allow the word of God to demonstrate proof that Jesus is presented as God himself. Proof one, Jesus knew the content of their heart. Secondly, Jesus claimed to fulfill prophecy. Now, fulfilling prophecy in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is claiming to be God or to be divine. John the Baptist, if you were here with us several weeks ago and we studied the role of John the Baptist in the life of Jesus, John the Baptist knew that he as well was fulfilling prophecy. He was the one who was to go before Jesus, to prepare the way, to make straight the path, to cry out, here comes King Jesus, everybody. And that prophecy was like in Malachi and other places that there would be a forerunner that would go before. Jesus and and John the Baptist knew that he as well was fulfilling prophecy but it's not the way it's not that way here in the scripture look with me if you would look with me if you would uh, in the scripture I want you to see a specific prophecy that Jesus attaches himself to now in verse in verse 10 Jesus is speaking to these scribes and he says but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He calls himself the Son of Man. 
And usually when we're in a Bible study group and somebody says, now, what does it mean that Jesus called himself the Son of Man? Oftentimes we'll say something like, well, he was identifying with humanity. He was saying, I am a Son of Man just like you're a Son of Man. And he was connecting himself to humanness. And I understand the logic there. But I, what I want for you to leave with this morning is an understanding that what Jesus was actually doing is the exact opposite. Because when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is referencing a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is having visions in the night. And if, if you're new to the Bible, you have a hard time finding books in the Bible, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to turn there for you. I'm going to read the scripture for you. And I want you to hear this morning this idea when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that he is specifically referencing Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. What is that saying? On the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Coming from heaven there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And let me tell you about this son of man that Daniel is having a vision of in Daniel chapter 7. It says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people... All nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And when we read that text in Mark chapter 2 and verse 10 and it says, So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. We typically don't associate this, this phrase with Daniel 7, but we should. Because Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew that when he called himself the son of man, Hebrew people, Jewish people would think of Daniel chapter 7 and say, wait, he's the one like the son of man? Jesus claimed to fulfill this prophecy. This prophecy that says that he will receive dominion. This prophecy that said he would receive glory. This prophecy that said he would receive a kingdom. And no one could stop his dominion. And no one could stop his kingdom. And that's a reference to Jesus in Daniel chapter 7. And, and Jesus attaches his identity to that prophecy. So this morning as we're looking at the scripture and we're saying, is there any proof in the Bible at all that Jesus thought that he was God? Is there any proof at all that the writers of the gospel believe that Jesus was God? Here it is. Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus claimed to fulfill prophecy and probably the one that you see jumping off the page to you uh, most obviously is the one where Jesus has the authority, the power to forgive sins. What's interesting about this story is that the scribes get it right and get it so wrong at the same time. Like, here's Jesus, and he, and he looks at this guy, this paralytic on the mat. And we don't know what his name is. In the, in the first service, I started calling him Joe. And then at the end of the service, somebody came up to me. He's like, don't you know that's not his name? We know his name. His name is Matt. And I was like, that's a good one. 
If you didn't catch it, he was on a mat. Mat. If you're watching online, it landed about as flat in here as it did probably with you at home. But he's talking to this guy. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's a powerful statement. And these scribes are grumbling in their hearts, it says. Who does this guy think he is? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? What a great question. Like they are, they get an A for their theological quiz that day because they're right. Only God can forgive sin. Like that is as clear as it could possibly be in the word of God. I cannot forgive your sin. The elders of this church cannot forgive your sin. Your Bible teachers cannot forgive your sin. Your Christian mom or dad or aunt or uncle or grandma or grandpa cannot forgive your sin. Like only God can forgive sin. They get it so right and they get it so wrong at the same time. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus, perceiving what they're saying in their hearts, address them. Jesus checks these people who are grumbling in their heart and they say, why are you complaining in your heart? Which is easier? Jesus asked them a question. You always have to be careful when God starts asking you questions. Which is easier? To say to this guy, your sins are forgiven or to cause him to get up and walk? Now, you have to understand the dynamics. If we're here, okay, if we're here in, in, in this moment, in this room, what would be easier for me to pull off? To look at somebody and say, your sins are forgiven, or for me to heal somebody who literally can't walk? It would be easier for me to get away with saying to somebody, your sins are forgiven, because there's no proof. Like, you can't look at that person and know you can't just visually tell their sins have been forgiven. Like, it's easier to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. I'm not saying it's easy to forgive somebody's sins. It's easier to say it. Jesus says, what's easier to do? To, to tell someone their sins are forgiven or to cause somebody to walk? And then he says, so that you know. That the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin. You know what Jesus is doing? He's offering proof. They're in this moment. Like it's gotten heated. It started with this great preaching and everybody's showing up. And all of a sudden a hole is dug in the ceiling and this guy comes down. Which would be strange if it happened today. And then we would be thinking, okay, Jesus is going to heal this guy. And he doesn't. Instead, he looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then there's that complaining group in the, in the back that starts grumbling, not saying it out loud, but just in their hearts. And then Jesus begins to speak directly at them and say, what's wrong with you? I mean, how awkward would you feel if in a group of people I just started talking right to you You'd be, hey don't talk to me I just preach a sermon right don't call attention to me but that's what Jesus does he calls it he he speaks right to them what's easier just to say something to this guy or to heal him 
And he said, but so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he turned and he looked at the guy. And he says, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. So that you would know that I have the authority to forgive sin. What does that tell us? That Jesus wants the world to know that there is forgiveness of sin through him. You have to understand that Jesus doesn't usually feel the need to prove himself to Pharisees and scribes. They're always trying to challenge him. He doesn't really respond. They're always trying to tell him, prove yourself. He's like, I'm not jumping for you. But here, he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. It is the heartbeat of Jesus for people to know that we are sinners and that there is forgiveness in Jesus. So that you would know. Now the scribes are right. Only God can forgive sin. And here's Jesus claiming to be able to forgive sin. What does that say about who Jesus understood himself to be? Here's the proof that Jesus clearly understood himself to be God. So that you would know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. And he heals the man. This is an important scripture because it tells us who Jesus understood himself to be. And this morning I've asked the question, does the Bible think Jesus is God? Does Jesus think Jesus is God? Like, what are we supposed to think about the identity of Jesus? Uh, Is he a great guy? Was he an awesome teacher? Was he a miracle maker? What was he? Well, the scripture says he's God. And Jesus understood himself to be God. He knew their hearts. He claimed to fulfill prophecy and he claimed to have the power to forgive sin. And then he demonstrates that he has the power to forgive sin by healing this guy. Jesus understood himself to be God. And so I hope this morning that we have expanded your view of Jesus. But if you're new to the fellowship, one of the things that you'll learn as you come back week after week is that we always seek to do two things. We always seek to open the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God say? And then we seek at some point in the message, whether it's myself or one of the other elders teaching the Scripture, uh, we seek to say, okay, that's what the Bible says. How do I apply all of this to my life so that I don't just know more stuff about God, but so that I can live a healthier spiritual life when I leave this place today and really walk with God in a more deep and meaningful and authentic way. And so for the rest of the time that we have, we're going to ask ourselves four questions. And I think if we ask ourselves these four questions, it will help us grow in our faith. It will help us put what we learn in our studying of God's word into practice. The first question is this, am I grumbling in my heart at Jesus. Because Pastor Zach has this theory. My theory is that the scribes in this story are not the only human beings that get frustrated with the Lord 
and grumble in their hearts. And the question for us this morning, the question for me, specifically for my life, and the question for you, specifically in your life, am I grumbling in my heart at the Lord Jesus? And isn't it interesting that when the Lord does something that we weren't expecting, or when the Lord does something opposite of what we were expecting, or when the Lord doesn't meet our expectations in some form or fashion, we can be really quick to grumble in our hearts, can't we? Like, I think God should do this. I think God should do X. Well, when it comes time, God does Y. And then all of a sudden, I'm frustrated and I'm grumbling in my heart. Why? God is at work. I should be rejoicing. Maybe God didn't do what I thought God should do. But that's why God is God and I am not. And don't you think that if God is doing anything, like we would be celebrating. But sometimes when the Lord does something that we don't expect, we don't rejoice. We grumble. We grumble in our hearts. And maybe you can identify with that. Maybe there's a specific thing in your life, a circumstance, a scenario, a, a thing that's causing you to grumble in your heart towards Jesus. And I say this with all love, and, and you know that I love you. But if you're grumbling in your heart towards Jesus, I hope that he checks you just like he checked the scribes. I smile when I say that so you don't get mad when I say it. I mean that, though. Like if we're grumbling in our heart. Listen, Jesus looked at this guy and forgave his sins, and people were grumbling about that. They needed to be checked. And to the extent that God's not doing what I want God to do in my life or in your life, and I start grumbling, God, well, what you should be doing is I deserve to be checked. Like, imagine, we, we have a baptism coming up soon, okay? And if, 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 you're at, if you're part of the fellowship, you know that when we do baptism, we do a video. And the person gets on the video, and he tells or she tells the story of how they gave their life to Jesus. Can you imagine playing a video like that, and instead of everybody erupting with applause, everybody go, hmm, and start grumbling because Jesus saved somebody from their sins. That is precisely what happens in this story. Jesus, saves, Jesus forgives somebody's sins, and people get upset about it. And you look at it and you go, how ridiculous and illogical is that? That's my whole point. It's crazy, isn't it? And yet, if I reflect on my life, there are times that the Lord did something that I didn't see coming. And instead of rejoicing, I grumbled in my heart. The first question is, am I grumbling in my heart at Jesus? Verse 6. The second question is, when have I brought someone to Jesus? When have I brought someone to Jesus. From verse 3, it says four guys came carrying this paralytic man who was on a mat. He couldn't walk. He couldn't get to Jesus. So the day that everybody found out that Jesus was at this house and the whole city flocked to the house where Jesus was at and they wanted to hear Jesus preach the word and they wanted to experience the sound of the voice of Jesus and, and the way that he articulated his message and how he preached the word to them. There was a guy who couldn't get there because he couldn't walk. 
And evidently, at some point, these four guys had to make a decision. And I don't know how it's like, we don't know how this whole story started. We don't know if they were walking down the road, skipping and singing worship songs, and they saw a paralytic on the side of the road, and they're like, let's get this guy. Or we don't know if he's their friend from like sixth grade, and, and he hasn't been able to walk that long, and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, you remember Matt? Like, he can't get there. Maybe we should go pick him up and carry him there. We don't know how this all started. We just know at some point these four guys said, you know what? We want to help this guy get to the presence of Jesus. That takes compassion. It also took consistency here because at some point, probably, unless they were all bodybuilders, their muscles got tired. I don't know if you've ever tried to carry a grown man anywhere. I don't think I ever have. I'm pretty sure I've never have. But if you ever try to carry a grown human being anywhere, you get tired quick. And even if you have four people, your muscles are still going to get tired. And they kept going. They were consistent in their desire to bring somebody to Jesus. And they were creative. Because when they got to this house and they look at it, I mean, picture this scene. They've got this guy and they get to the house and you can't get in and like you can't even get through the door. And can you imagine him like letting him down? Just being like, hey, man, we brought you as far as we could. Good luck. We're going to see if we can push through the crowd. See you when it's over, right? Like, sorry, that's not what they did. They creatively found a way to bring a person that they cared about to Jesus. And those four men, listen, they're nameless. They are never, not one time, are their names recorded in the Bible. But they speak to me constantly. Am I bringing people to Jesus with compassion, with consistency, with creativity? There's two big questions that I have to ask myself. Am I grumbling in my heart at Jesus? When have I brought someone to Jesus? And you may be wrestling with that. You may be looking back like on your past recent history or long-term history. And you may be thinking to yourself, I don't think I've ever brought anyone. I'm not asking you this question so that you can feel miserable about yourself. I'm not asking you this question to force you to go, well, I must not be a good Christian if I'm not bringing people. No, I want this question to inspire you. For you to understand that they were just regular people who were committed to bringing somebody to Jesus. And just like God used these four men, God can use you to bring somebody to him. It is not your job to heal people. It's not your job to save people. It's not your role to forgive people's sins. All we have to do is get people into the presence of Jesus and trust that Jesus is going to do something. And that's a question for us to wrestle with. Am I grumbling in my heart towards Jesus right now? When have I brought someone to Jesus? The third question, this is from verse 12. What causes me to rejoice and to praise God? Look with me in verse 12. 
The scripture says that all of this stuff has transpired, that Jesus went to this house and people showed up and it was crowded and four guys brought this guy and they made a hole in the building and they let him down. And Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes were grumbling in their hearts. And so Jesus addressed them right in front of everybody. And then he turned to the guy and he's like, listen, so that everybody would know that I have the authority to forgive sin. I tell you, take up your mat and go home. And then he does that. He stands up, he takes up his mat and he goes home. And verse 12 picks up after all of that's happened. It says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all. And look what happens. So that they were all amazed. They were glorifying God saying, we've never saw anything like this. And it causes me to ask this question of myself. What causes me to rejoice? What causes me to praise God? What do I get excited about? What do I smile about? What do I get triumphant about? What gets me going? What do I love so much that I long for it and I pray for it? And when I see it happen, I rejoice and I glorify God and I say, this is awesome. What is it that I rejoice about? This is an important question for me to ask and I think for you to ask of yourself as well. Because if the answer isn't something that causes God to rejoice then we need to realign our hearts with the values and the perspective and the agenda of God. Like if, if, if I were to see this happen and not rejoice, I would need to realign my heart to God. If I would look at this and go, hmm, that's cool, and just keep living my life unaffected, I would need to realign my heart with God. And so the question that I've been asking myself over the past several weeks, getting ready for this Sunday, is what causes me to rejoice? What causes me to praise God? And I think that's a healthy question for all of us to ask. The fourth question this morning, and we've expanded our view of Jesus, and we've asked ourselves three questions. The fourth question this morning is, Equally, if not more important, it's the last one, but it by no means the least significant, perhaps even in many ways, it's the most significant. Have I been forgiven by Jesus? Stemming from verse 5. Jesus looks at this paralytic on a mat. And isn't it kind of paradoxical that Everybody's looking to Jesus to heal him, to help him to stand and walk. And instead, what Jesus does is he says, your sins are forgiven. And in a very real way, Jesus is addressing his greatest need. And we would look at him and say, his greatest need is to walk. And Jesus does not hold that perspective. Jesus thought his greatest need was to have his sins forgiven. Now, is his physical body important? Absolutely. But what's really important is his sins and being forgiven. And and this morning, I, I just think perhaps we can look at that verse and say, have I heard the Lord say to me that my sins are forgiven? And it's easy to get foggy on this. 
because we're a, a religious culture. We're a spiritual culture. So many people believe in the existence of God. And I just want to just kind of cut through all of that and just speak real clear on this matter. Jesus is the only one who can forgive your sins. And the scripture says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Not when he saw their works. You know, sometimes we think, if I just do enough good stuff, it'll outrun the bad stuff. And one day when I die, God's going to have this chart where he puts all the bad stuff and then he puts all the good stuff and whichever one wins out determines my destiny. That is an unbiblical perspective of what it means to find salvation. When Jesus saw his faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Our works will not bring salvation to us. You know what else Jesus didn't say? It didn't say when he remembered that this guy's mom or dad was a Christian, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, your brothers and your sisters, their faith and love of Jesus cannot save you. It's your faith in Jesus that you have to bring. And so this is so important that I just wanted to pause before we end today and give you that as a question. Have I been forgiven by Jesus? Am I grumbling in my heart? Have I been forgiven by Jesus? Have I brought someone to Jesus? What causes me to rejoice and praise God? I don't know which question you need to answer in what order, but if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I can tell you this, that's where you need to start this morning. That is eternally significant. And if you've never been forgiven by Jesus, how I plead with you to put your faith in Christ Jesus today so that you too, just like the paralytic on the mat, you too can be forgiven of your sins. Would you pray with me? As we close our time, I want to give you some space to spend some personal time with the Lord. Those of you who are online, I plead with you to join us right now. Would you just spend some time before God? Answer one of these questions between you and the Lord. Grow in your faith this morning. We thank you for the gift of corporate worship, for the command even of corporate worship, for the beauty of lingering together as God's people, singing together, 
receiving communion together, studying your word together, encouraging one another, cheering for one another, blessing one another. It has been such a rich and beautiful and glorious day in your house. We acknowledge the way that you engage us with your word. The way that we're looking at the story and then all of a sudden you're shaping our hearts because of what happened over 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Lord, that you clearly demonstrate that you are God. Thank you that our faith in you brings forgiveness. Thank you that when we grumble in our hearts, you check us. Thank you that you give us the awesome privilege of like these four men, bringing people into your presence and watching you do incredible things in their life. And we together pray for those who are here this morning or online with us who might need to be forgiven. We pray that they would have the courage to put their faith in you even at this very moment. Bless them, Lord, as they seek you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.